last week or the week before we uh, had chat with you, and you were talking about that story of the three losses uh, and Kim having a hard time with that. Yes. And you know, so when my brother, when he was killed, um, we went to his service, his memorial service, and then three months later, we went through this whole ordeal with Shirley, which Kim's family, there's, Kim has five sisters and two brothers, and it's an incredibly tight-knit family. Minnesota, North Dakota folks that migrated west. And, um, and the shock loss of her mom was, it was devastating. And, um, and then three months later, and Matt, you have to remember, Chad at this time is um, like eight months old. And then to have my five-year-old niece suddenly killed the day after her fifth birthday. Kim just went, I can't do this. I can't go. I can't go. Because she's still in the immediate backwash of her own mom. And it was just too much. And it was like, no, don't, you know? And so there was all of that, all of that emotional, crazy tidal wave going on for her. And it was, it was overwhelming. Part of the problem for me was, well, um, I still hadn't dealt with my own stuff, so I knew how to disassociate, right? So I could compartmentalize my life. And so even in the middle of Shirley's death, um, I was the one that the family looked to, even though Kim's middle of the pack, and, um, but I'm the one that can talk to the doctors, do all the arrangements, everything, because I could just shut this part of my world completely down. I, I didn't have a lot of access to it anyway. And so, you know, so some of that kind of uh, brokenness has, it, it can play a role at times. And so I, I didn't, for the most part, I did not engage with the emotional onslaught of it. And it just, Kim not being able to go actually evidenced greater health than me compartmentalizing and shutting it down. You understand? Yeah. 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 Is that the point kind of you're after? Yeah. <laughs> oh. that, that's exactly the point. Because uh, in our culture, um, we're told to be strong. And we have no idea what that means. And with Kim being strong by not going and just being mush, we think strength means bottling it and stuffing it down and rising above it, you know, by faith in God, I can conquer all things, I can do all things in Christ. And you mimic all these dumb verses and hide the emotions. So yeah. help us with that, because that, that, I when, think that's big. When Kim's mom, I mean, she, it took three days, and, and um, her family... Her family was in the waiting room, and that was like 30, 40 people, right? And, and that's not all of her family by any means. It's like 150 of them. And, um, but they had filled the waiting room, and they were all... Oh, I hope you tell the story. I hope, it, I uh, hope this coming. one part's coming. Good. And, and, and the emotions of... I mean, they were emotional. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm dealing rationally, intellectually, compartmentalized. And when the doctor came and said... I need to talk to someone, it was me. And so Kim and I went to talk to the doctor. And the doctor said, Kim, you and your family need to make a decision. Because your mom is on a ventilator, life support, 
no brainwave activity whatsoever. And so the choice is you're going to either leave her on life support, we don't know indefinitely, uh, uh, or remove her from life support. So Kim and I walk back into the waiting room where the family is waiting, and we walk back into a situation. One of Kim's sisters had a boyfriend at the time, who when we walked back in, and some of her, her, her family, her brothers in particular, were not faith people, weren't Jesus people, and, but we walked back in, and here is this young man in the face of Kim's siblings saying, you know that if you, if you had enough faith, your mom would not be in there dying. So when, when, when I say that, you know, I, I look at him and I go like, if, if I look at him now, I'm going like, you have no idea what you're doing. You know, it would be the, the, the prayer of Jesus on the cross, right? You really have no idea what you're doing. He, from his point of view, he's actually trying to be helpful. Really, he is. But it pissed me off. Now, it didn't piss me off. It just... Grieved me. you in your spirit. I'm not, I'm not in touch with my emotions enough to actually be angry. <laughs> And uh, yes, I was too righteous to be whole. And um, so I walk over to him, and this evidence is my, some of my brokenness. And I say to him, all right, can, can I ask you a question? And this is in, in front of the whole group of people. I said, um, is this sort of like a majority thing? Like if the, if the majority of us have enough faith, then surely we'll live? This is, you have to understand, this is right after the doctor has told us that we need to make the decision to take her off the ventilator, you know, on the life support. I said, is this a majority kind of thing? If the majority of us, he says, yeah, well, yeah, that, that would work. I said, well, let me ask you a question. What if there's one person in this room that has enough faith? Just one. will surely live. And he thinks for a second and he says, Yes. And I said, good, you're it. If she dies, it's your fault. <laughs> That's what I was waiting for. Why is that a problem? <sighs> no, as in what? I know. We're in the churched world. Like you say, my people. You're referring to the churched. Modern evangelical fundamentalists. Kay. You know, holiness people where God is, God is looming behind the back of Jesus. Jesus loves us, but has to sneak us past God. Jesus came to save us from God the Father. Yep. You know, and, and part of the reason that I framed God the Father as a large black African-American woman is because I wanted to get as far away from Gandalf with a bad attitude as I could get. You know, because that is the omni-being behind the back of Jesus that, that Baxter talks about. And, and, um, and seriously, he, I know that he thought that what he was doing was a good thing. It wasn't like he was intentionally trying to be so harmful and so hurtful, even though he was. The intention there was to actually be the presence of Jesus. He just didn't know how to be a human being in the midst of human beings who are, are suffering. And, um, and it's... It's a difficult thing when you're in the midst of the waves of loss where you have to care for the person who's trying to help you. You know, it takes a special 
input of the grace of God for the one who is in the middle of the turmoil to turn and care for the, for the one who is trying to help <laughs> and is doing such a bad job at it. And to, and to recognize, this is not about me. You're speaking from your own limitations and brokenness and, and you're really trying to do the best you know how. And uh, it's not fair, but it's real. You know, and, and I, I know having been in that situation a number of times now, you know, one of the most beautiful things about the shack, writing the shack, one of the most <sighs> wrenchingly beautiful things is that I get invited into some of the most horrendous losses you can imagine. Because people who have read the shack or watched me talk, they trust me. They trust me that I'm not going to be some, have some religious answer to pain and suffering. I'm not going to say, get over it. I'm going to climb inside of it. I'm going to weep with you. But the one thing I'm not going to do is try to fix you. I don't have that power. None of us do. And we don't carry that burden, not our job, right? And, um, and it's like, but I'll be with you. I'll be with you. And so, you know, I hear the stories and I get invited into the losses. Um, and some of them, some of them are so horrendous, I couldn't even tell you about them. The way human beings treat human beings. And, um, and yet, in the midst of it all, there is, there is the rumor of glory, as Coburn would say. There is something transcendent, even in the midst of the person who is buried the most deep inside of the brokenness. And, um, and if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you can hear it and, and find it. And, um, but it doesn't make it right. And, and, and it's, it's, it's okay to be angry about stuff like that because it's a right response to things that are wrong. And, um, that's a whole nother nuance of what happens in the grieving process. It's like people will try and they're just, they're just not skilled. It's like trying to get a guy to share their heart, you know? And I'm talking about especially the older generations. It's like women need to understand that they, they were raised relationally and men weren't. We weren't taught how to talk about stuff. And it's going to take us a while, and you need to help teach us, right? Well, it's the same thing about grieving. There are people that do not have the skill set. They've buried their own losses so deep that they think that they've resolved them. You know, and it's down the road when tragedy happens and, and their system gets crashed and, and, and they end up with a breakdown that all of a sudden those losses are allowed to come back and the grief is allowed to surface so that it can actually be embraced. Does that make sense? I had uh, one individual ask me, and again, this comes to those trite conversations that, like your, your boyfriend guy there, meant well, but they say the dumbest things, and I, I hear it at funerals all the time, where Christians will say, if you, you know, again, if you had enough faith, or uh, ways of skirting grief by saying they're in a better place. They, like these I know. believers who are 
joy. Just and they are in a better place in a sense. I mean, they're away from the brokenness here. But everybody watching, like I've, I've, I've heard of, of, of a father grieving the loss of his son, and his wife is bawling. He's singing, he's with Jesus, praise the Lord, happy hallelujah, and all this right at the funeral. Uh, yeah. What do you say to that? You don't. You, you go over and you give him a hug until something changes. <sighs> I mean, I'm, I'm grateful there's no formula to this stuff. Yeah because you're dealing with the incredible depths of what it means to be human and how that uniqueness has been broken and hurt. You know, that kind of response is a response that's trying to give glory to God on the one side and say that my response is a response of faith. But, but it's what it is, it's a denial of humanity. You know, when Jesus, in, in the Lazarus story where his best friend has died and he weeps, I was listening to somebody talking about that, and and, and they thought that he was weeping because he, was, he understood the losses of all the people there because he knew in his mind that he was going to heal Lazarus. You listened right? to one of my sermons, huh? Right? <laughs> Is that you? Sorry. Whoops. And, uh, but, um, uh, but that's, and I'm sure that's true that Jesus was sensitive to everybody there. But I don't believe that he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus was fully human. He wasn't pulling the God card out. And I'm sure that, that he was in response to his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And so, because he doesn't know. He's not, he doesn't got a plan about what, how this is going to go down. And he's constantly responding to what's actually in front of him. That's why it takes him so long to get to Lazarus to begin with. Because he's responding to what's happening in front of him. It's not because, well, it'll be okay because I'm going to go and raise him from the dead. When he weeps, I think he has entered totally into the loss himself. This is his best friend. Because his Lazarus' sisters are all upset because he's disappointed them, right? Because it's like, don't you even care? You know? Here you are, his best friend, and, and you weren't even here when he died? And they don't care about a woman who has an issue of blood or Jairus' 12-year-old daughter has died. They care about the fact that their brother is dead, right? All of this turmoil is going on in the midst, all this craziness. Because let me tell you, there are clarifying events in our life, and death is, and loss are, are two of them. They're incredibly, they stop. It's like the world stops. You've been through this, you know. It's like, how can people keep driving their cars? Don't they know what's happened? How can they be you know, going for a hamburger and an ice cream? You know, because it's just like incongruous in your mind that the world can keep going when your world has absolutely stopped. And, and those are real emotions and feelings. And so all of that is going on in a culture that at least lamented well. You know, the, the Jewish cult, culture, you know, what is it, 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of grief and lament? They're real. The my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, you know? And it's, these are real laments. I mean, this is, this is, God, I wish you'd take my enemies' babies and smash their heads against the rocks. You can't say that. <laughs> right? That's, that's Politi a Politically incorrect. And you know, and you know, 
because it's an expression of how somebody feels. It turns out that one of those enemies, the enemy was Saul and the baby, one of them was Jonathan who becomes his best friend down the road. I mean, it's just, again, it's not like, it's not the pronouncement of a curse, it's the expression of being human. Hmm. I want to I read something to you to give you an example. And it, over the years, you know, my, at first my dad beat, um, beat my emotional world where I, I made the internal agreement or vow that I'm, I'm done crying, right? I'm done. And, um, and so I didn't have a lot of con emotional content in my life. Uh, so when you, when you take focused emotions like anger and grief and you bury them, they become unfocused emotions uh, like irritability and depression and things like that. Things that you cannot connect. They're not focused emotions, right? Grief allows you to focus your emotions. Kim is really healthy this way. Kim is an emotional verbal processor. And, and, it's, and I, over my lifetime, am learning how to do it. I remember I was 38 years old, and, and I'd gotten the one thing that I got from my dad, the one thing that I knew about my dad that was, that was on my behalf was that my dad prayed for me. He didn't know how to love me, but, I, but prayer, prayer was my dad's connection to God. If, if nothing else, and it still is, he is a prayer person. In fact, he prays out loud. And I know that my brother-in-law, who, who did not have a relationship with Jesus for years, will go and sit on the stoop on the stairs in the morning just to listen to my dad. And my dad doesn't even know. Right? And so I get this email. I'm 38 years old, 30, almost 39. My life is blown up. I'm working my way through it. I'm starting to come to some degree of wholeness. And I get an email from my mom. And, and it says, and I want you to know that your dad has started to pray for you again. I'm like, what? He started to pray for me again? You know, and it just, it just blew up this, this through line that I had, right? And I lost it. I mean, and I am, I'm raving. I mean, Kim has never seen me like this. She's trying to scrape me off the ceiling. And, I'm, and I say to her, do you realize how pissed off I am? This is so cool. I mean, I'm like, this is incredible. Look, I'm really angry, you know? It was such a cathartic event in my life. It's like, oh my gosh, I am really angry, you know? And it was a turning point. It was one of those turning points for me where I finally was able to access this because my dad failed to live up to something that at least I thought I had, hmm. yeah? Expectation. And, oh, oh it, was a, it, had, it, was a, it was an assumed expectation. Oh, man. That if I've got nothing else from him, I know he prays for me. And, um, and it was like, so, so I, got, I, I got to the place where I was so lost that you quit. I was no longer someone that, you know, that whole thing, right? You can see where that, where that went. Oh, my gosh. And, but I've watched, when, when you reduce your emotional world, 
you reduce the colors of your life to just shades of gray, right? And because it's emotion that gives you color. And, um, and I watch the restoration of color in my life. And as a result, I cry a lot. <laughs> and, I, and when um, Saryu collects tears, you know, and she says, you know, we all collect things that are valuable to us, don't we? I collect tears. That's right out of Psalms, by the way. I collect tears. And that's because tears have become absolutely precious to me. And, um, and so um, a few years ago, and I want to I read something to you. And I, and I wrote this as a lament because I've been, I've been trying to find ways to, to write grief because it's my, one of my avenues of expression. And, um, and I was thinking this week about some of the losses, you know, with the plane going down. And, um, and I, I don't have a real strong, I'm a third culture kid, so, you know, belonging to a, um, a place in the world is not a, a big deal for me. Um, I'm part of third culture kids who grew up in different cultures. And if we're, the, we're the ones that if we don't find someone to belong to, we never belong anywhere. And, um, but, but I was born Canadian, and, and I, I love being Canadian, and I was never, I mean, this week it just reinforced how, how much there are things, you, you, can, you can gripe and complain, because it's easy to. I mean, politics and all that, easy targets. Religion, easy target. If you want to be pissed off at something, you know, those are really easy targets. And, um, but the way that the Canadians have responded to this loss, or the way the Amish community responded to the, the killing of those little kids, the, the, the girls, you know, the way they responded to the mom. And, um, and, and when, you, when you hear that, you see that, and, and how the Canadians never talked about, you know, the, the losses as, as, as immigrants or people who have come to Canada to look, they were always just Canadians. They were Canadians. And, and I thought, that by itself is a ripple into the world that, that people will notice and have noticed. And so I was in London in the midst of a whole series of losses. And I wrote a lament. And I didn't pre-read this. I haven't looked at this for a while. But I know that it, the way that I wrote it allowed me to grieve some things. So, you know, if you find yourself being swept along, let yourself be swept along. And there's something that I want us to do afterwards. And I'll tell you about that. Um, what's our time right now? Oh, good. Oh, good. We're, our target time is 8.45, by the way. Is that OK? I mean, they told you 8.30, but it's me. And. Um, <laughs> I called it the cosmos at the crossroads. About a week before the tragedy in Connecticut, I received word that my sweet cousin had given up her decades-long war against schizophrenia, took her own life, and gave it back to God. Jennifer. I saw her a year ago and humbled to be the, one of the only people left in her world 
from whom she would receive a hug. A couple days later, I'm sitting with a group of men who are trying to bring some life and hope into the decimation happening in the Congo. They had spent a day with a group of 100 women, all of whom needed reconstructive surgery because they had been tied to trees and raped hundreds of times. And then in our own backyard at Clackamas Town Center Mall here in Oregon, a lone gunman shattered the sound of silent night as he fired fear and bullets into the families and friends celebrating a season of great wars. And there is Connecticut. I'm in London, not even able to bear the images as I sit in a puddle on the floor. Part of me doesn't even want to know about it. Wants to shut down and pretend that we are kinder to each other than this. I get back to Portland, Oregon and find out that a friend of mine has just been diagnosed with aggressive cancer. His wife only a short time ago survived the arduous and debilitating process of breast cancer. And now what? We have to do this again? His fear leaks out in between the sentences and wry bits of humor. It's been barely a year since our youngest son's best friend was instantly killed in a dirt bike accident, 17 years old and only child. A friend's four-year-old nephew is dying of inoperable liver cancer, and for his family there's been no good news. One of our daughters is warring against a little brain tumor for almost five years now. God sees it all. Somehow, God is inside of it all, Emmanuel, with us. So I do what any sane human being would do. I collect a box full of old apples. And I drive out to an abandoned barn in the middle of overgrowth and standing only 20 feet from the dilapidated and eroding stable door, I pick up the first apple and it explodes into the wood as my scream echoes into the woods. The grief I feel is not formed, it has no word within which to adequately find expression. It is simple and visceral and full of anguish. The cry of grief and loss and questions, the shattering of innocence and ignorance, desperately hoping that somewhere inside this place there might be a manger. With the 24th apple, the prayers begin to form inside the tears and the groans, the fury slowly spent, but now focusing. Why? I want to know why. Why? Do you let us do this to each other? I don't want you to have this sort of respect for us. Today, I don't want this freedom. What I want is for you to step in and make our decisions for us. Obviously, we have no idea what we're doing. We're so lost and hell-bent on hurting each other. Why won't you just take our power away from us and stop us for our own good? Why do you insist on climbing up on a cross, on taking a towel even in the midst of our agendas and self-important aspirations, and taking the time to wash each foot, cleaning off carefully and gently the dust of the day and the dust of death. Why do you care when we don't? And children, what about children? The loss of our children, our hope. Hope for our innocence and our future. 
Nothing shatters our, the illusions of civility and humanity as when our children are impacted. How soon we forget that we are all children until we see it in the faces of our losses. Why, in your wisdom, did you have to come and join our damage in such a way that within only days, women will be weeping the killing of their own little babies? You becoming a baby born in blood and water may be joy to the world, but that silent holy night was soon shattered by the wailing of the mothers. Herod was once a child, my God. What happened to him? that he could grow up to become the killer of children. The 40th apple breaks on impact. Wrong, 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 wrong. This is all wrong. I want my revenge, but that's wrong too. I know it's somewhere deep beneath all these emotions. I want justice, not the kind that punishes, but heals. The fury of fire that burns from us all the desperate need for power and control. I want to. I want to be an inferno that burns away the power to hurt. I want mercy and life and grace and light and love, but, but the cost? I stand arms limp holding the 50th apple, tears streaming down my face. In front of me, a stable door is covered in my best attempts at being human. I'm undone. I feel so irrelevant. So impotent. And I know the truth. I'm Harry. I'm the boys with their guns and self-hatred. I'm the man tying to the woman, the woman to the tree, and the other man who unties her and carries her to a place that will begin the healing. I'm the police officer outside the school collapsing into the arms of another first responder, and together they weep their agony into the embrace I'm the mother and the father who stand with empty hearts and broken arms, hardly daring to glance at the place at the table that should be occupied, but will remain vacant until I'm my cousin who gave up the fight, too tired to try for even one more day. I am my daughter who wars against her own body, my friend who is trying to stay with his wife and children inside the grace of one day. And I sit down in the half-frozen muck of the road. And I don't care in this moment that I am muddied in the grime of our common humanity. Somewhere in this mess there are seeds and something's growing. And I'm looking at the stable door holding the 50th apple surrounded by the litany of sorrows of this year, each sadness linked to a person who resides in my heart and will never leave even as my memory fades. In this moment, I'm missing you. Adam, Jenny, Pops, Mom. From somewhere, maybe inside, there arises a breath of warm presence. It holds me for just a second, just enough. And I hear the whisper, Paul, let's you and I always trust that life is bigger than death. Life is bigger than death.
want to take a, a couple minutes and I want to. This is a time of grace and griefing. But I want to, I want to, I want to give you an invitation to do something. That is, I want you to acknowledge a loss and a name, if you have, if you have one, that's on your heart. I want you to stand up, say their name, your relationship, and name it. I don't want you to name suicide. I want you to name what, like, if I, if I say Jennifer, Jenny, my cousin, schizophrenia, mental illness, right? It's a loss. And I want you to be able to name your loss safely inside a community of people who grieve with you. And when somebody has said it, you don't have to do this loudly, but I want you just to say a common phrase that has been here for centuries, an invitation to a God to continue to climb inside of our losses with us. It's very simple. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And it can be a living loss. It can be a loss that is part of death. It can be a, a loss that you're experiencing relationally. It can be. I want you just to be able to stand up. I want you to acknowledge it. I want us to be able to join with you. And invite Lord, have mercy. You don't have to do this. Everybody doesn't have to do this. It's, but I, I, I know there's somebody here that needs to just say, it's my loss. So put a name to it. Put your relationship to it. And name an element of it, a cause of it. And if you would stand up and do that, I don't want anybody closing their eyes and stuff like that. I want you to see. And then when you sit down, we, we together will just say, Lord, have mercy. Yes. Michael, my son, started at age of 12. Lord, Lord have, have mercy. mercy. Lord have mercy.
Lord, Lord have mercy. with my son Philip living but we are dead to him Lord have mercy, Lord, have mercy. that's a living loss Estrangement, divorce, betrayal, these are also real losses that deserve being grieved. One of the questions that I get asked a lot is, what do you do with the regrets? What do you do with the regrets? I don't know about you, but I, believe it or not, I wasn't a perfect father. I wasn't a perfect husband by any means, and a lot of you already know about that. And I hurt people. I have some of those losses, some of, some of that grief that continues to live with me. Some relationships that I violated so deeply that I'm still 20 some years later not reconciled to. I would love to be, but it's not in my power right now. Not today. What do you do with the regrets of choices that were made and damage that was done? I've only found one way and that is I've learned to, re to live with regret as part of grieving and not part of shame. <laughs> I can't tell you how important that is because regret will kill you if you let it become part of the whisper of shame. But to grieve it, yes. When it comes through, yes. When somebody reminds you Grieve it. Grieve it. Let yourself feel it. Let the wave of grief just carry you. And, and be the cork that just rides it. Right? It will pass. But don't allow it to become a whisper of self-accusation that drives you into aloneness. If you are able, always invite someone else into grief and regret. 
always take an active stance against aloneness any time that you have the power to do that. Don't isolate yourself. You're not designed to do this on your own. And you can't have an objective perspective when it comes to the waves of our own loss. Let me give you a couple other things that will help. One is deal with it only inside today's grace. Don't project process into the unknown future, right? Don't future trip your process of grief. Don't begin to ask, how long is this going to take? When is this going to be over? When, is, when am I going to be past this? Right? Allow yourself to respond to it as it is today and let tomorrow carry its own grief and its own grace. Does that make sense to you? Grace is sufficient for the day, so keep the grief inside the day as well. And you will have enough. When you learn to stay inside of one day's grace, you will always have enough. It's the idea of impending the compilation and the piling up of grief into the inevitable future that begins to just weigh you down like you've been under, buried under tons of concrete. Respond to it as it happens inside the grace of the day. Tell God the truth. Don't tell God what you think God wants you to say. But say things like, right now I feel like you're not big enough for this. Right now I feel like you're not even here. Right now I feel like you're with the happy people. But also ask good questions. Don't ask, you know, I've, I've, I've almost never had God answer a why question. <laughs> Just so you know. I'm reminded of Job. He asked one why question. God says, okay, you answer these 49 questions and I'll answer you one why question. Because see, why is a lot of times, because, because we don't want to deal with our emotional world we want an intellectual idea that we think is going to give us certainty, right? And the why is give me something that I can hold on to with my mind rather than trust you with my heart. But ask a good question like, how do you want me to see this? Or are you in me? Are you here? And every one of us in the inside world, in the realm of our own imagination, have a safe place. I can tell you what mine is. It's been that way since I was a child. It's under a tin roof in a monsoon rainstorm in the middle of the jungle. And at any point, I can go there. Where you are safe on the inside is the easiest place where you can hear the voice of God because God lives in you. I want to read you a poem by a friend of mine, David Tenson. And it's really a remarkable poem. Like, all of his poems are really remarkable. I'm kind of in love with him. 
he's an Aussie boy, and, uh, and um, but, oh, that means we have five minutes. I'm on top of this, let me tell you. <laughs> this is like perfect timing. I told you we'd get to one question. Sorry. This is a great way, actually this is a great way to wrap this together. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for timing. Timing is the sandbox of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you knew that or not. <laughs> timing is where the miraculous happens. Timing is where you can see the Holy Spirit play the most. She's like the most brilliant being when it comes to redemptive genius. Here's the poem. I know that you know, so I should probably confess it. <laughs> see, that's about truth-telling, eh? I know that you know, so I should probably confess it. Not because it's a bad thing, but because it's normal and necessary to admit. You've disappointed me and continue to. Although I don't mind as much now, still, there were many times I prayed, I followed the rules, I gave my two mites, I did all the things that I would told would work, and others certified with charismatic conviction to do more, to give more, to faith more, to sacrifice more, lots more, and still nothing. No breakthrough like I believed, like I prayed for, well, I underestimated you. I wanted to believe that you were containable, constrainable, reliable in the my way kind of way. The magician, the hitman, the slot machine, the deal maker, the earth shaker, the genie in a bottle kind of way. And then I recalled that on a dark but necessary day, you took yourself and my kind of way and the cosmos to a cross. And then you went missing for three days and my world fell apart and all my hope exhaled a forsaken surrender and my heart broke and my dreams broke and my kind of way kind of died again. And then there you were, alive. And the same, but not really, a resurrected form of you that even took familiar friends by surprise. And that's what you keep doing to this day. You keep failing and disappointing me in the best kinds of ways. Every time I think I've got you where I think I need you, <laughs> you disappoint and disappear. And then you turn up incognito on some familiar path at a regular meal in an average garden with a spark in your eye, a spark that demands my attention. And you invite me again to put my hand in your side, to embrace you and kiss you and get to know you again in a new 
kind of way. Kind of way. Isn't that beautiful? Oh my gosh. And what it's saying is, life is bigger than death. Your choice is to trust or control. To let yourself feel the loss is to not control. To trust is to not control. But to take the choices of trust means you actually have a sense that God is good and loves you. Because the one who fears is not perfected in love. And that's not an accusation. That's just a, an observation. To the degree that fear, shame, are in our lives, to that degree we don't know yet how much we're loved. And that's the journey. And as, as difficult as loss can be, there's redemptive genius that climbs inside of it. Loss isn't justified. You can't justify losses. Death is never justifiable. Right? Betrayal is not justifiable. Adultery is not justifiable. You can justify divorce because of the hardness of people's hearts and brokenness and things like that. I can see that. But adultery, there's never a justification for it. The loss of a child. What about a cross? Capital execution torture device. Any justification for that? Does the salvation of the cosmos, that God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos to himself, not counting their brokenness against them, does that justify a cross? Absolutely not. The cross is absolutely wrong. There is nothing good about a cross. But the fact that there is a God who can submit to our torture device that we manufactured to hurt one another, and that this God can, by submitting to it, climb on something that is absolutely evil and horrendous, and by submitting to it, destroy its power, and then transform what this torture device is into an icon and a monument that becomes so precious to us, a symbol of grace, that we'll wear it on our necks, we'll wear it on our rings, we will celebrate it. That's redeeming genius. Death does not have the final word. You don't need to justify things that are wrong. But understand, this is a God who doesn't run away from suffering, always runs toward it. It is in the middle of it, not to justify it, but to transform it from something destructive into an icon and a monument of grace to the praise of his glory. Amen? Hmm. Amen. Oh. Last words.
Paul, thank you. I'm absolutely honored to be here. Thank you. Did you enjoy this? It was your heart hit. This is just scratching the surface. I had like 20 more questions. No, can't. We have to be kind to the folks who work here. <laughs> yeah. We'll lock up. Yeah. <laughs> we'll lock up here. Over. Yeah. But there's much more to learn in God's timing. You don't know how many times I was thinking, I got to ask that question. I get that question. And the Holy Spirit's saying, shut up. I got this. Just because somebody wants to know something, I'll tell them. You don't need Paul. That was right. Uh, I'm, with I'm still learning. I'm learning a lot. So thank you for tonight. Uh, thank you, Alex, again, for the use of this incredible facility. Uh, what an honor to be here and use this for a place of grace and talk about a very difficult thing on grieving, which all of us struggle with at some point. And if we haven't yet, we will. So uh, whether it's suppressed or becomes real. And thank you for those who had the guts to stand. And, and thank you to those who didn't have the guts but wanted to. Jesus heard that. Thank Just so you know. When we're done here, um, I'm going to ask you if, you if you would like to, if you could make a donation. Just to, We want to bless Paul back home. And I should put a mirror here. Um, donation envelopes are at the door as you leave. Um, thank you. And tomorrow morning, I don't know how much room we got at our church. You're welcome to kind of come. <laughs> saying um, Hope Fellowship's in the outlet mall across the street 1030 um, be there at least quarter after because I think we're going to be full um, we're going to live stream it anyway so go to the website find us on YouTube or the Facebook page we live stream it and Paul's going to be sharing tomorrow morning and uh, I know in by March 1st our little church in the mall is moving to Elmira we've been invited to live at the St. James Lutheran Church uh, permanently um, share together, two families in one building. That's a big change for us. And I think for them too, they have no idea what they're getting. So, um, but a lot of change going on. And uh, that's life. So thank you for taking the time tonight. Thank you, the team that did all the work of sound and video and the team that were telling us what to do and where to walk. You know, thank you for all that. That was awesome. Have a great night. You're dismissed.